tired today. It is a it is a sleepy day in LA. It's a little cloudy outside. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm sleepy. <laughs> I wonder how much that has to do. Well, two things. One, same, um, because it's been very rainy out here in Pennsylvania. Two, um, don't you at me. Don't you at me right now. Okay, okay. <laughs> and two, neither of us have been getting the doctor recommended amount of sleep. Is that a, a spicy eight? Yes. No. <laughs> no, I'm closer to it than you are, um, for sure. <laughs> Listen. Are you listening? I'm listening. Uh, I got nothing. I got not a single excuse. Listen, sometimes life comes at you fast, okay? And um... Except, here's the thing. I feel like staying up late, like later than you mean to, is life coming at you slow and mean. <laughs> Depends on the reason. It, sometimes I'll get into bed nice and early and then be like, I'm just going to hang out on my phone for a little bit and then I'm going to go to sleep at a reasonable hour and then all of a sudden it's way too late and life came at me real hard real fast. Whereas if you're forced to stay up, like I have to do for my um, my job, oh, those are minutes turned into hours. Yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. I feel like night for me, is when, you know, no one's awake to uh, to witness the absolutely unhinged Google searches, you know, which I have an excuse to do now. Yes. You have an excuse to do now. We can oh, yes. go down rabbit holes. We can do deep dives. And all of a sudden, it's 3 a.m. And you're like, whoa, oop, oop. How did that happen? I do my research. We We've established this. I like to do my research in the mornings because, like, when I wake up, I'm like – I'm a, I'm a wake up and get going person because as soon as I stop, I'm done for the day. That's it. That's the end of my energy for the day. And so I'll wake up and do my research and power through. And then you are kind of the flip and you will wind down your day and uh, extend it into multiple by just continuing the research. Yeah. See, you sent me that really good paper from UCLA this week mm-hmm. that you found. And 30 pages later, Anyway. Oh, no. <laughs> it was so good, Trace. I know. I know. I, I get really excited when I find, like, research articles from universities. They tend to be really delicious. Yes. If it's someone's thesis, they have mm-hmm. thoughts. They have feelings. They have something to prove. Mm-hmm. Also, I have something to prove. Hi, I'm Rowan Hall. Hi, I'm Tracy Harrison. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Each week, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you'd like to support our show, check out our newest merch drop, focusing on Vaporwave, Hot David, Mona Lisa, and Achilles. Sweet soft boy Achilles. Sweetest, softest boy. Everyone knows that about him. Slash intense murderer. Or, or have you considered telling your childhood crush, your first love about us? Are you in contact Ooh. anymore? No. But who cares? Call him up. <laughs> Tell him you found a really good podcast. What a great way to get back in touch. <laughs> Say, hey, my guy, my gal, my non-binary pal. I loved you when we were eight, but... <laughs> have you heard about this podcast (laughs) (laughs) or 
You can support the show by sitting in your local gas station parking lot at midnight as a fog rolls in from a mysterious source that you've yet to identify. As you approach the fog, you begin an adventure that will be told for years to come. Or you can just sit and enjoy this episode, but no matter what, we're happy to have you here. Or, 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 we got a five-star review. Yes. Okay, spoiler to everyone, I know this review because Rowan sent it to me about approximately one minute after she saw it. Less, I think. (laughs) I sent it to you before I even finished reading the entire thing. That's amazing. I hadn't gotten through the last sentence because our little email thing was cutting it off. Mm -hmm. So I really took a gamble. I was like, this last (laughs) sentence could go south, but I'm sending Mm -hmm. it to her. Consuming storytelling. Rowan and Tracy have one of the most wholesome relationships, and being able to witness their interactions helps me feel better when the world makes me feel like I'm wasting away with consumption. I would listen all day to their well-researched dives into stories from around the world, yet somehow they even outdo themselves by crafting original tales that truly belong side by side with the legends of old. They're careful about tales from groups they are not a part of and do the work to be respectful while educating from their own lane. And that was posted on Apple Podcasts from Calivia. I think that's how it's said. Anyway, thank you so much. Oh my god. Every sentence just gets more and more heartwarming. Like, we have a wholesome relationship. Oh, my God. That's so sweet. Um, Our stories, like, they could listen to us all day. Incredible. Our stories could be told side by side with legends of old. Unbelievable. I mean, it just gets better and better and better. Yeah, that was, it felt like a little, like a little hug. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes, and Rowan sent that to me when I was particularly tired and stressed, and it truly, truly made my day. I sent you a bunch of texts yesterday and you were like, why are you doing this? I'm like, I don't know. My spidey senses are tingling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's very true. (laughs) Then you started sending me the most adorable like combination of like a very real compliment followed by a very unhinged, very silly one just to help ease that in. It was very charming. I can't get too saccharine too fast. Mm -hmm. Okay. So today's episode, we're kind of doing another weird mashup you and I collaborate but kind of don't collaborate situation Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) so I saw a post on Instagram which I'll, I'll tell you about when we arrive at but it was about a performer who was famous for being a quote sideshow freak and Mm -hmm. she had such an interesting story and I brought it up to Tracy we thought it would be really interesting to tackle a topic that we've had pinned for a while but haven't really exactly known what to do with because you have some things that you've wanted to cover and I had some things that I wanted to cover. Yeah, and we were torn because we wanted to cover we wanted to cover the topic of sideshows by diving into the history, but then it was like, you know, do you cover a single performer and then also the topic as a broader whole do you cover multiple performers and and it just kept falling through of we hadn't decided how to how to tackle the subject and then it just fell into place and we jumped on it for this episode yeah so today's episode is a variety show about freak shows and there's something distinctly american about mm-hmm. the idea of the sideshow or the quote freak show and i just want to say right off the bat Get ready 
because the word freak is going to come up a lot. And knowing our community, our wonderful community, that probably Mm -hmm. feels very abrasive to hear. It's not kind, especially taking into account the fact that many of the people who appeared in these shows were disabled or had physical appearances that caused society to other them. But because we're talking about a time in history when this word and much worse was bandied about, I think it's important that we be able to say the phrase when context and quotes demand. Mm -hmm. Because we, we are community, are people who understand the importance of nuance, we also understand that discussing something bad doesn't make us bad. And I would say that if we're moralizing, ignoring uncomfortable conversations is probably worse, but we're not going to moralize that way. Right. I also want to say right at the top that we're going to discuss a variety of disabilities in this episode. And I know there's a large amount of talk about person-first language, meaning to say person with a disability rather than disabled person. I've read a lot about this, and I've consumed a lot of content, and more importantly, I've spoken to my disabled loved ones over the years a lot about person-first language, and Mm -hmm. some people like it, and some people that I personally know and love very much think that it actually stigmatizes disability sort of by almost trying to bury the word in the sentence or treating disability differently than you might say a redheaded person. Right, right. Making it, I could see where to some people it makes it feel really valid. It makes them feel like I'm a human being and this is a part of me and other people saying you're making it a bigger deal than it is even to me. Right. So it's super okay to be disabled. It's super okay to have a disability, even if no one can see it or everyone can. Society can make life hard in a variety of ways for someone living with a disability. Like all of the sentences that I just said, we're going to use a variety of grammatical structures to discuss disabled people from history in this episode. And we're all going to agree that it is so much more worthwhile to try to earnestly learn about some really interesting people living Mm -hmm. during often very difficult times. And we're all going to trust each other to care more about humans and the rich stories that they lived than the place we put the very okay reality of disability in a sentence. Thank you for writing that more eloquently than I ever possibly could have. I feel very passionately about it because I know a lot of people who it directly affects. So with my own loved ones in mind, but also just I think we can all agree to be good humans. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What is a freak show? And to this, I say, hey, Wikipedia, how you been? Hey, baby, how you been doing? Hey. Uh, (laughs) And we quote, a freak show, also known as a creep show, is an exhibition of biological rarities referred to in popular culture as, quote, freaks of nature. Typical features would be physically unusual humans, such as those uncommonly large or small, those with intersex variations, those with extraordinary diseases and conditions, and others with performances expected to be shocking to viewers. 
Heavily tattooed or pierced people have sometimes been seen in freak shows, more common in modern times as a sideshow act, as have attention-getting physical performers such as fire-eating and sword-swallowing acts. Since at least the medieval period, deformed people have often been treated as objects of interest and entertainment, and crowds have flocked to see them exhibited. It was in the 19th century, both in the United States and Europe, where freak shows finally reached maturity as successful, commercially-run enterprises. During the late 19th century and early 20th century, freak shows were at their height of popularity. The period 1840s through the 1940s saw the organized, for-profit exhibition of people with physical, mental, or behavioral rarities. Although not all abnormalities were real, some being alleged, the exploitation for profit was seen as an accepted part of American culture. The attractiveness of freak shows led to the spread of the shows that were commonly seen at amusement parks, circuses, dime museums, and vaudeville. The amusement park industry flourished in the United States by the expanding middle class who benefited from short work weeks and a larger income. There was also a shift in American culture that influenced people to see leisure activities as a necessary and beneficial equivalent to working, thus leading to the popularity of the freak show. And... Massive quote. My favorite part about this quote is that it clearly describes something that I've always felt but could not have explained before my research for this episode. And that's even though it started in Europe, there's a long history there. Quote, freak shows have always felt inherently American. And I think that that is because... American culture worships at the altar of capitalism, and often that results in exploitation. Yes, and it was a time period in America where the morbid was very consumable. Think about the Victorians. You know, that's how we think of them with their interest in the esoteric. And when then you combine that with the figure of someone like P.T. Barnum, and you get the classic American freak show that we all think of that people, you know, think of American Horror Story. Didn't they have a freak show season? Yeah, you can draw a straight line from the movie Freaks, which I believe came out in 1932 and did hire people who had uh, different physical appearances straight to American Horror Story freak show. It is a unbroken, don't pick up your pen line of just Mm. media. Yeah. The film Freaks actually was one of Guillermo del Toro's favorite films. That doesn't surprise me at all. It's not, yeah. Knowing that about him, you can kind of trace that. This this interest, once you know about it in people, is very easy to follow. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to quote Tracy's paper that she found the very, very cool, quote, dangerous bodies, freak shows, expression, and exploitation. It was for UCLA Entertainment Law Review by Brigham A. Fordham. And it goes further than Wikipedia did by saying, Mm -hmm. quote, The expanding marketplace of the mid-19th century, in combination with a new fascination with science and travel, caused freak shows to flourish as never before. People from all walks of life came to see the shows, from Henry James to the Prince of Wales to the humblest families— Proper American households in the 1860s collected photographs of formerly posed family members, statesmen, generals, and often freaks. Mm -hmm. 
During this time, freak shows were promoted as being morally uplifting and educational. Those who worked in the industry distinguished three kinds of, quote, freaks. Born freaks were those who had been born with a particular physical anomaly, like Siamese twins or armless people. Made freaks were those who had done something to their body to make it unusual, such as covering it with tattoos. Novelty acts were performers who did something unusual for the show, such as pounding nails into their heads or swallowing swords. In addition to these three types, there were gaffed freaks, or phonies, such as the armless wonder, whose arms were hidden under a tight-fitting shirt. Of all of these, the born freak was held in the highest esteem. After the turn of the century, the medical model began to gain force over the scientific approach, and people with unusual bodies were increasingly viewed as sick or having a medical disorder. Greater knowledge about genetics led to the eugenics movement, and people began to view deviant bodies as a threat to a, quote, beautiful, genetically pure America. A belief that health, beauty, and morality could all be determined by the form of the body conceived the unusual body as a dangerous error, end quote. I had never put those pieces together that freak shows flourished at a time before the eugenics movement really took off at least in America, and instead of saying these things are are horrible for our society, we put them up on a pedestal in a very weird way, in a way that wasn't necessarily good, but it was a very, very different reaction to what you see hundred about a hundred years later. And that quote, I thank you for sharing that quote because that really highlights that well. Yeah, I thought that it was important because looking at this research – you could say, oh, well, you know, they were they were bad and immoral and exploited people, and then we fixed it. But we didn't. We just all collectively discovered eugenics, which mm-hmm. is a, a not a fix, my friends. It that's dark and yeah, bad. In, in in no scenario. Not one. Not a single one. Say this, not a single scenario is that the fix. No. And so I think it's it's worth following the timeline down to a arguably darker place. I mean, none of this so far is good necessarily for anyone. <laughs> no, no, but we'll dive into it because for for some people, you have to mention that performing in freak shows was their only way to make a very decent living. Oh, we're going to talk about that a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, this is not specific to America, but this is going to acknowledge a lot of what the United States is grappling with today, freak shows were promoting people who appeared non-white, who Mm. had limb differences, those with smaller or larger heads or heights as, quote, freaks, specimens, missing links, part of a, quote, extinct race or a fantastical creature and so on. The Lynchburg Museum writes, quote, The first documented traveling sideshow in American history was in 1738, in which a woman taken from West Africa was exhibited. A Virginia advertisement described her as four feet tall and having the body of a woman, but, quote, the face of an ape, clearly reflecting the extreme racism of the day. The term exotic mode was a Mm -hmm. big part of this. 
American Studies at the University of Virginia writes, quote, the exotic mode of presentation was often used to exhibit so-called tribal people. The exhibit backdrop might include paper mache boulders and faux tropical plants in order to exoticize and unfreak the human. Within the hyperbolized environment, the inferiority and otherness of the person within the exhibit is emphasized. P.T. Barnum's infamous What Is It exhibit is a classic example of the use of the exotic mode of presentation. William Henry Johnson, a mentally disabled African-American man, assumed the role of What Is It for many years. He was often displayed in a handmade fursuit amidst fake exotic background where he would run around and grunt to the delight of the audience, end quote. That is something that I saw a lot during my research. I want to do even more of these episodes because there were a ton of people that we just couldn't get to today. And in my research amongst who I was going to cover, I saw a lot of stories about people having to, you know, let's say there was someone, there was the quote unquote wolf boy. And part of his act, even though he was extremely intelligent, was to run around and bark and scare the audience. And you see that over and over and over again in the different shows, people putting on airs to be less human to be a performer. Yeah, the freak show has a legacy of people dehumanizing themselves. They're dehumanizing themselves. And actually, you perfectly seg into, I want to talk about William Henry Johnson first because I was not originally planning him as as one of the Mm -hmm. folks I was going to dive into, but he kept coming up in articles for me and I had to, dive in there. So to cover William Henry Johnson, we actually have to start with P.T. Barnum. Let's do it. Everyone hopefully recognizes his name from Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus, which Mm -hmm. existed in more recent history, or The Greatest Showman. Okay, two thoughts. One, I went to the Barnum and Bailey Circus as a kid. I have a distinct memory of my parents taking us to the circus when we were children. Two, we don't have the time for me to start on my thoughts on The Greatest Showman. I will summarize my thoughts thusly. Why would you choose to make the man I'm about to describe the hero of your musical? All right. P.T. Barnum established himself as one of the leaders of the American freak show industry, after he purchased an enslaved woman named Joyce Heth in 1835 for what he called an investment of $1,000. She was blind and paralyzed, and he fabricated a sensational story about her being 160 years old and George Washington's former nurse. Though she was proven to be only about 80 years old upon her passing in a very public way. Audiences didn't care by that point. Mm -hmm. He charged people to see her, and he made up this fantastical story. And he made the equivalent of the amount that he paid for her each week, roughly, before she passed. (laughs) Each week. He made nearly $1,000 in that time? Yeah, during her life that he... 
Right. Not our, sorry, in our currency now, $1,000 or $1,000 in 1835 ish? In 1835 ish. Oh my God, that is so unbelievably much money. Yeah, that's, that's my understanding of it. Unless I'm, unless I'm losing my mind, either way, it's entirely too much money. <laughs> of course, Miss Heth was not making that money while she was an enslaved person. From this experience, Barnum learned about the market's eagerness for a dark, sensationalized scam. So he charged people to see the Fiji Mermaid, spelled Mm -hmm. F-E-E-J-E-E. This was sold about for exorbitant amounts of money, and he basically rented it for just over $12 a week so that he could charge for people to see it. It was made out of the torso of a juvenile monkey sewn onto the body of a fish, and it earned him an incredible amount of money. He then purchased the American Museum on Broadway and hosted a, quote, rotating roster of freaks, albinos, midgets, giants, exotic animals, throughout the 1840s. Tracy, I have an illustration of the Fiji mermaid as shown in P.T. Barnum's autobiography. Okay. So I've seen this creature before, so this isn't as much of a shock to me, but um, there is something always a little bit disarming. This is a... um, an illustration done in looks like pen and ink and it looks almost so it looks like the preserved body of a creature so in that sense that the skin is pulling away from the face and it's a little bit shriveled um there's no pupils to the eyes and if you look closely at it you can see it's got almost like a capuchin monkey head where it's got kind of the little mustache um the mouth is open very clearly showing the fangs And it's got one arm resting under its head and one arm up by its side as though it's sleeping. Very interesting pose to put it in. And then the bottom half, you can see very clearly where it looks like they just stitched a a monkey and a fish together. You can see the dorsal fins and then the tail kind of wraps around at the end. It is um, truly the word springing to mind looking at this illustration is gruesome. They very cleverly chose a female monkey because she has breasts and Mm -hmm. a lot of times the fiji mermaid was advertised as being very beautiful and then when people would come and see it it would be scary oh and there are a lot of specimens like this that exist in various museums today people started doing it Mm -hmm. i'm not surprised at all they're all very blackened and scary because mm-hmm. of that, like, mummification mm-hmm. that you talked well, about. Well, of course, th- it also makes it easier to obscure the details that would make you able to identify it. Right. And the fact that it looks human enough mm-hmm. is just the perfect amount. Mm-hmm. So, William Henry Johnson was born in 1842, the son of newly freed enslaved people, His head was slightly microcephaletic or cone-shaped, and while some articles, like the quote I referenced above, discussed learning disabilities he experienced, others don't at all. So that to say it's unclear if he did have learning disabilities at all? I didn't reach a conclusion that I felt comfortable kind of landing on. Mm -hmm. It it was Mm 50-50 with all sources that I, I found 
reasonably trustworthy Mm -hmm. because there is that element of people trying to appear less intelligent than they are for the show so often in freak shows. Right. And racism. Right. I don't want to necessarily put that on this man, although learning disabilities do come along with that particular health issue. Mm -hmm. Not uncommonly. So, it, it, you know, six of one. Mm-hmm. In 1860, he was recruited by P.T. Barnum and given the stage name Zip the Pinhead, who was, quote, a different race of human found during a guerrilla trekking expedition near the Gambia River in West Africa. The, quote, missing link angle was incredibly popular because Darwin recently published origin of the species it's such a fascinating time in history because there's this combination of exploration of knowledge and also you can just make up nonsense lies and make millions and billions of dollars this act perfectly plays on a lot of the dynamic that i saw in people analyzing the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp trials, and Amber Heard specifically, mm-hmm. in that people love to feel better than. They love to feel smarter than. Mm-hmm. In the case of Johnson, that is very much based in race. They want to feel better than this man. Yes. And they want to feel educated about it. So in the case of Amber Heard, there was a lot of the you know, turning her into a Jezebel. She's lying. She's tricksy. But also, I can see through it because I'm clever. In the case of this freak show, there's the, you know, you are less than me because you are more melanated and I am racist. But I am so educated that I can see it and I understand from a scientific point of view. I think that's a big part of it. It's the, well, I get to study this lesser evolved being and really present to my peers the knowledge we've gained over the you know it's just this i imagine the way they talk about william henry johnson being very similar to if we were somehow able to take the dna of a ancient 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 human and have them stand in front of us we still wouldn't act like they were a person so That's a lot of what's happening in that exhibition in particular. Mm -hmm. People are trying to say that this man is less evolved than they are. So you hit the nail on the head and it is ugly. Mm -hmm. It's just ugly. So he was paid a dollar a day, put in a cage, and Barnum also had him play violin badly, which caused visitors to pay him to stop. Oh my God. He became one of the stars of Barnum's show drawing in celebrities like Charles Dickens. And as his popularity grew, Johnson had as many as 10 shows a week. And for that, he would make $100 per performance, which is about $3,576 today. Barnum also purchased him a, quote, lavish home in Connecticut. Johnson was said to be very positive Quote, he amuses the crowd and the crowd amuses him. Mm-hmm. And I, we have no way of knowing how much mm-hmm. that is true. 
And even after Barnum's death, he continued to perform into his 80s. Wow. During a 1920s Scopes trial, he offered himself as living proof of evolution, which is proof of his knack for marketing himself. Mm. And he did have a manager later in his career that was described as his friend. And I don't know if they were friends first, managers later, or vice versa. Got it. Though he capitalized on this role of the lesser fool, Johnson was clever with his business and his money and retired a millionaire. Good for him. I mean, so many bad things in this story, at least he got to retire as a millionaire. But when did he retire? In his 80s? I don't know when he officially retired. And I guess we could potentially say, because I don't have a retirement date, he passed away a millionaire. Mm-hmm. Either way, he he took this exploitation and did in some ways gain control over his own life and his own career because he amassed money. Mm-hmm. Apparently, he once told his sister, quote, well, we fooled him for a long time. He would die in 1926 in Bellevue Hospital from complications from bronchitis. And I want to point out, he had a doctor that he worked with. He was still close with his sister. He wasn't, like, left in Bellevue because Mm -hmm. I know a lot of of times history with Bellevue is that way. He was brought to Bellevue because he was very, very sick uh, at the end. But only one year previous, at the age of 83, he rescued a young girl who was drowning off the coast of Coney Island where he was performing. At 83, he jumped into the ocean to get this girl. Amazing. It is estimated that he entertained more than 100 million people during the course of his 67 years in, quote, show business. And though he was clearly exploited... Again, this is one of those stories where we're seeing some good in the bad Mm -hmm. and some bad in the good. Mm -hmm. A lot of bad, maybe. Just so that no one thinks that this flavor, this manifestation of racism, was only limited to circuses and independent sideshows, I want to talk about Ota Benga. He was a young man who was captured from his home in the Congo when the military force of the Belgian government murdered the Mbuti people. And he was exhibited at the World's Fair in 1904, along with other indigenous people from the Americas and Asia. Wow. At one point, he was placed in the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, And in 1906, he was placed in the, quote, monkey house in the Bronx Zoo. The sign on his cage read, quote, The African pygmy Otabenga, age 23 years, height 4 feet 11 inches, weight 103 pound, brought from the Kasai River, Congo Free State, South Central Africa, by Dr. Samuel P. Werner, exhibited each afternoon during September. I don't have words for this. I don't. Um, It is a level of cruelty up with the first story you described of P.T. Barnum's first woman. It is just so inhumane 
so cruel, so callous, and so deliberate. I wanted to start with these stories because for the most part, these people are quote-unquote freaks Mm -hmm. because they're black. A lot of the stories that I saw when I was looking through, that was a big big draw. Even – it's not one we're going to talk about today, but I would like to cover him in another episode. Fat Albert was a freak in a freak show through the 80s. There are listeners we have who might have met him or seen him, and his big thing was that he was very heavy and black. And I also wanted to open with – the details about language at the top because trying to step around the language that is used and was used to talk about these people during that time would be doing an injustice to the reality of their stories. It is so jarring to sit in my own home and read these words associated Mm -hmm. with these people. But I think it's really important to understand that the Bronx Zoo had a human being in a cage with an orangutan and then said, exhibited every afternoon during September. Well, and to put that, to put in perspective, that happened somewhere in the area of 115 to 120 years ago. We're not talking 1357, people did horrible things and we can feel better about it because we're better than them because they're so far removed from who we are. We have to face the reality that this this is something that happened very recently. Though he was eventually freed from the zoo when African-American clergymen, whose names I unfortunately couldn't find, petitioned for his release, Mr. Benga spent the rest of his days in the United States and died by suicide at about 30 years old after he shot a pistol through his heart. The pain, I just the pain that he must have endured during those years is genuinely hard for me to process. Yeah, he he had a very fraught, dark life. He did get to return to Africa at one point. Uh, I don't know a ton of details about it, or even if he made it back to his country. Right. Um, but to... To travel around that much and then to still be stuck in the United States, it's just, it's all very hard Mm -hmm. to hear and I'm sure excruciating to live. And this, these stories are really poignant examples of why the word exotic carries so much baggage today. Mm -hmm. I don't think, I've encountered a lot recently people being like, why, why exotic? Why can't we say exotic? And that is a word that was put on these people to other them a lot. Yes. Um, And on the topic of words, actually, the word geek was originally used to describe carnival workers. The 1975 edition of the American Heritage Dictionary gave the definition, geek, noun, slang, a carnival performer whose act usually consists of biting the head off of a live chicken or snake. Okay. I had no idea. That is shocking. Yeah. So, let's talk about the show. There was a four-step process to producing and marketing freak shows. Pretty much consistently, whether you saw it at the World's Fair or at a traveling circus. Number one, we have the lecture or spiel. The showman would pull the come one, come all Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Doctors or professors or people who claim to be those things. Yeah, that feels more accurate. 
would use heightened language or medical jargon to add legitimacy to the narrative, and they supported the very specific, let's call it, flavor that audiences took on about disability and sexuality and gender and race at the time. Then there's the printed ad. Usually large signs, pamphlets, or newspaper ads. These emphasize the unique things each act was trying to highlight using writing and or images. These shows were promoted as being, quote, morally uplifting and educational, as I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. I don't want us to forget that. Three, the show itself. This included the costume, the space, the choreography, all the details that sold what the team was trying to market as abnormal. And then four, the collectible printed souvenirs that came in the form of postcards and for some recordings of the showman's pitch, lectures, accounts, etc. These details are really intriguing and that's going to come up in one of my stories later. Okay, all right. A large part of this marketing process came from the names that the performers were billed under. Right. Some historically accurate real human examples are the lion-faced lady, the bear lady, the tattooed man, General Tom Thumb, the dog-faced boy, the lobster boy, the cannibal, the legless wonder, etc. Yes. Yep. I, I looked into pretty much all of those people while researching for this oh, week. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I want to cover every single one of them because they they each have these rich, fascinating lives. And we're very lucky to know a lot about many of them, at least during their time performing, because yes. they were very documented. It's it's their life outside of the performing that gets increasingly hard in to learn insane. about. It, it, there's, it is feast or famine when it comes to information on these people. Well, it's like celebrity. Mm -hmm. P.T. Barnum once wrote to a publisher in 1860, quote, I don't believe in duping the public, but I believe in first attracting and then pleasing them. So it's all basically theater. Mm -hmm. And examining those steps and society's perpetual unease with the other, and then this counterculture that existed within these carnivals and shows of people who were unaccepted accepting each other, it's no wonder that the freak show has remained in the cultural zeitgeist. So now let's talk about Ella Harper because she is the woman who I saw the Instagram post about mm -hmm. on at History Cool Kids. Uh, seeing her brought this back up again and kind of spurred the conversation with Tracy and I. Yeah. And I also want to believe that this story can show us some good in the bad, but that might be a lot of wishful thinking on my part. Mm -hmm. So Tracy, this is an image of Ella Harper. She was billed as the camel girl. And this is one of the photographs that I believe was used to market her. It does look like a marketing photo. It's it's very crisp, very clear. It very much shows her full body. So this is a black and white sepia image in which you see a young woman, um, honestly a girl. She looks really young in this photo. Um, She's uh, either a preteen or a teen. Yeah, I was going to say she looks 13, 14 maybe. And she is on all fours. And so from head to waist, it looks like a person – 
with their hands down in front of them. And then from waist down, what's interesting about her is that her legs actually bend backwards. So it looks like she moves around most comfortably walking on all fours. And it looks like she has on um, either maybe a pair of pants or a skirt that's sort of cinched just above the knees. And she's in very classic um, late 1800s clothes with that crimped hair that's clearly she sleeps in braids. Yeah, that's one of my favorite details about this mm-hmm. picture. I knew you would pick up on it. <laughs> the the waves in her hair that clearly mm-hmm. come from sleeping in braids. Because uh, you and I have both done that. And it is – those are the details that I like seeing in photographs of people from a long time ago because I see that and instantly – like I feel like she's going to be at a sleepover at my house. I, I feel like I've seen this girl on the street. She looks like I, – I this is – it's hard to look at this image because this girl likes, looks like she should just be in school. Um, she has a very sweet-looking face in this photo, um, a little bit of a hint of a smile. Um, it's just little things like her hair texture is the same as mine. You know, she's got the straight hair at the top and then crimped from the braids. My hair looks like that when I sleep in braids. And, mm-hmm. and there's just something very, very um, easy to connect to with this photo. Yeah, and it's worth also pointing out she's clearly on a set that's designed to look like the outside. Yes. It's got a log in the background with some leaves on the right side and what honestly looks like a potted plant on the left. Yeah, and the background is clearly painted. Oh, yeah. So you're right. Uh, she definitely walked around more comfortably on all fours. Mm-hmm. Ella's pitch card read, I am called the camel girl because my knees turn backward. I can walk best on my hands and feet as you see me in the picture. I have traveled considerably in the show business for the past four years. And that's the the postcard that people would get when they came to see her that they would take home with them. Ella was born on January 5th, 1870 in Hendersonville, Tennessee, and she was born with congenital genu recurvatum. I hope I said that correctly. And this is a condition that made her knees bend backwards. And for anyone who's having a hard time imagining this because we are a podcast, knees bending backwards means they would actually hinge forward toward your waist if you're mm-hmm. kneeling. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite of what they would normally do. So it's actually, even though it's backwards, it's f- forward toward your front. What's what's difficult with this image um, to process is that when you first look at this image, you might feel like it's her her waist almost looks twisted, or it looks like her bottom half is spun the opposite direction because your brain is trying to put her knees bending the way you want knees to bend. Oh yes, and they are not. Um, so just keep that in mind when you go look at this image, which all of these images will be on our Instagram, but you can also Google any of these people and find these images. She began working at the age of 12 and by 1886 became the star of W.H. Harris's traveling Nickel Plate Circus. It was a very Hmm. cool name. Unfortunately, it is a cool name. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing about these. They market themselves well. What did P.T. Barnum say? I don't believe in uh, I don't believe in lying to people, but I believe in getting them excited and teaching them. I don't believe in duping the public, but I believe in first attracting and then pleasing them. So Ella Harper made a weekly salary of two hundred dollars, 
which is about $5,000 today, weekly. Oh my God, good for her. I want that kind of income. I know. And she would stand on stage while a camel, a real camel, was paraded around her so that audiences could remark on their similarities. So I guess let's touch on this because I, I do not look at her and think camel. I don't. But no. my guess is what's happening is that... You're going to mm-hmm. get it. Yeah, yeah. It's it, When you look at the picture, you'll put the pieces together. Uh, I guess where my brain went, oh, it seems like things are turned around and then recontextualized to say, oh, no, her knees are bending forwards towards her waist. And she's just walking on all fours. Um, because she's walking on all fours and her knees bend forward towards her waist, it means her her, her behind, her backside is more prominent in a way than I guess it normally would be? And is that what people are saying makes her look like a camel? Just that her butt's up in the air? First of all, I'm wondering if they fluffed that up with clothing. I'm certain that they did. I think that they chose to call her the camel girl because this circus already had lion tamers and acrobats and showing Mm. people in middle America a camel alone Mm -hmm. would be very exotic to use that word again right so then likening this girl who everyone is fascinated with with an animal that is also fascinating you are basically getting a two-for-one draw yeah that is my guess but you know it's not like it's coming out of nowhere they it's not like camels walk on two legs they really had a limited amount of animals to choose from that they could travel with this is This is a production. It is marketing. Mm -hmm. It is just like all the theater shows that you see. It's just Mm -hmm. dark. The press said of her, she is, quote, the most wonderful freak of nature since the creation of the world. Or, contrarily, the press said, quote, it is said by those who have seen her that there is nothing like her today on Earth and that her counterpart never did exist. But she is nothing more than a pleasant-faced young woman whose knees turned backward instead of forward. Her pitch card also included the quote, I intend to quit the show business and go to school and fit myself for another occupation. And I love that so much Mm -hmm. because it sounds exactly like a young girl being like, well, this is my day job. Because I eventually want to go do this other thing. Right, right. Oh, and, and and not being burnt out thinking the only thing I can do for the rest of my life is this. And that 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 joy for life and learning that young women have. It also reminds me, probably because this has been coming up uh, online a lot, where, you know, people say to sex workers, like, what are you going to do when you're not, quote, young and sexy anymore? And And sex workers will be like, well, I'm saving up hideous amounts of money, and ideally, I won't then have to work. Mm -hmm. It's kind of this idea of like, I'm going to use what I got while I got it that society puts on people. Mm -hmm. Um, And then people who live under capitalism say, okay, let's do this. She quit the business after not too long. One year after she got that higher salary of $200 a week, she was able to quit. And so she was 16 years old. When she was done. Good for you, Ella. That's amazing. Very little about her life after the circus is known, except what people were able to investigate through forms like the census. Mm. Many people believe that she was able to pursue an education using the fairly substantial wealth she acquired, but I don't have any proof of that. 
Ella Harper married schoolteacher and photography shop owner Robert mm-hmm. Savely on June 28, 1905. She was age 35 at the time. The following year, she gave birth to Mabel Evans Savely. Unfortunately, Mabel died only six months after her birth. And then their second daughter, Jewel, who they adopted in 1918, survived for only three months. Ella herself died in 1921 at age 51 of colon cancer, and her death certificate cites that she was a housekeeper. Hmm. Despite the losses of her daughters, her story is generally considered to be a positive one because she worked in the circus and got out pretty fast and then got married and kind of lived her life. It sounds like she's one of the few people who was able to choose to take the path that enabled her to live her life the way that she wanted to live it. Whereas there are some people that it was never an option. And in fact, what I'm going to cover, um, we'll see that that wasn't necessarily an option. I also get the sense that some of the reason this story is described as positively as it is is because she got married mm-hmm. and i think a lot of people are doing that well how could she possibly get married because she's so different from us her body is so different from what it quote unquote should be and that was the idea that was put on her at the time right that is the society that she lived in and so i think when you read about it today that idea is baked into the story That, you know, she kind of bucked the odds. Right. How bad could her life have been because she was able to do what she should have if she'd been a normal woman? Yeah, normal woman in quotes. Oh, extreme quotes. Sorry, you couldn't see my hands. But, you know, she was not able to live a normal life uh, until maybe hopefully she was. Yeah, I hope she found um, lots of moments of joy. Yeah, I wish a lot of joy for a lot of people that I've read about yes. for this one. Including who I'm going to talk about now. Um, I'm going to switch us over and talk about Chang and Eng Bunker. You may know them as the original, quote, Siamese twins. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I've heard of them and I know nothing past okay. that. So they are famously um, their death cast. There was it's not just a death mask, but it's a death cast of their torso, their head to torso, um, is in the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia. So that's something that I was actually able to see when I was there. Rowan, would you like to describe the photograph here we have of Chang and Eng Bunker? Okay, so this picture is black and white. The cool thing about it is they're clearly standing in front of a backdrop that's been painted, so it has that very, like, theatrical quality to it. I had never noticed the painted backdrop. I was just like, it's a wall, and moved on. But you can see the the ripples in the fabric of it on the left side. Yeah, and they're standing in front of what looks like there's a pillar on the left-hand side, and there's a wall behind it, but it's clearly two-dimensional. So they are dressed in like what I would call dapper gentleman attire. Mm -hmm. Um, They have jackets on. They have vests underneath that look of velvet. Mm -hmm. They have white 
collared shirts. I can't tell, but they look like they might have ascots or like something going on that's making them fluff a little bit. Um, They are conjoined at the chest in a way that allows them to both face out toward the photographer, but also um, makes it appear as if they are just leaning in towards each other. Mm -hmm. They both have very serious expressions on. Yes. What's interesting is, and you mentioned they're standing side by side here, when they were little, they were actually facing each other. And their Mm. mother forced them to go out and play and run around and work in the yard. And that worked their muscles enough that they were able to begin to stand side by side with kind of their arms around each other. And that was the position they spent most of their life in. But had they not worked that hard in their youth, they would have been stuck facing each other. That is so cool. Right? Good on their mom also because, listen, I don't need any excuse to stay inside. (laughs) Right. (laughs) For them to be treated like any other kid because they were not the the only kids in their family. They were just one of many or two of many. Oh, yeah. I'm sure having siblings and siblings just like beat on each other a lot of times. So I'm sure having siblings really informed how they behaved with each other. Because if you are automatically two folks receiving behavior that might be directed at only one, it's gonna it changes the game. Mm-hmm. According to the Mother Museum's website, quote, Chang and Ang were born in Siam, now Thailand, in 1811. After spending much of their lives on exhibition tours, the bunkers settled in Mount Airy, North Carolina. They married sisters Sarah and Adelaide Yates and raised a total of 21 children. They maintained separate households on separate farms, taking turns spending a week at each other's house, end quote. One, that's adorable. Two, 21. 21 children. That is so many children. That's entirely too many children, actually. (laughs) It's so many. So as I mentioned, as as infants, the connective tissue that uh, caused the brothers to be positioned face-to-face was able to stretch because their mother encouraged them to exercise. Chang was positioned on the left and Ang was on the right from their own point of view. And apart from their fused liver, each of the brothers had a complete body with separate organs. Hmm. Chang was one inch shorter than Ang and wore lifts in his shoes to make up the difference so they'd be the same height. They had seven siblings who were not conjoined, uh, four older and three younger siblings. And the Bunker brothers lived near a river, and as they grew up, they learned to walk, swim, and operate a boat together as as conjoined twins. The lifts in the shoes thing, as someone who wears platforms, terrifies me. The number of times I've rolled my ankle. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, that would be tough. Because again, they were only conjoined basically from their chests. And so you have to walk in step and move in step, and you have to uh, operate as though you are one person when you are in pretty much every possible way two completely different people. I wonder what it feels like if, say, like one brother tripped and starts to go down, what that pull feels like when you're attached mm. by an internal organ. Mm. I'm having clumsy girl thoughts about this. Like, I want to know the result of clumsiness, I guess. I imagine that... And this is pure speculation, but I imagine it's something they'd be able to describe to you, but it's the kind of thing that 
You know, I as a twin get constantly asked, well, what's it like to be a twin? What is it like being able to read Jamie's mind, Tracy? We all know you can. (laughs) (laughs) You see that? I used to, as a sassy teenager, be like, oh, I can read her mind. And she's saying that you're an idiot right now. I love that. (laughs) But... My response when people say, what's it like being a twin is, well, what's it like not being a twin? This is all I've ever known. Mm -hmm. I can tell you my experience, but I don't have the alternative experience. So I'm sure they could talk about what it's like having to, you know, if one of them falls and the other one falls, but they, they don't have the experience of falling on your own to then compare it to. That's a really good way to put it. So as teenagers... Chang and Ang left their home and began a career traveling with two agents, Robert Hunter and Abel Coffin. Just taking a break for a second, Abel Coffin is a fantastic name. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> they earned money by giving lectures and demonstrations throughout the United States, Canada, South America, and Europe, and eventually they gave up touring and settled in Mount Airy, North Carolina. They were married in 1843 to, as I mentioned, sisters, Sarah and Adelaide Yates. This marriage was extremely controversial for a couple reasons. One, um, obviously, sisters marrying the conjoined twins was just very shocking for the time. But uh, two, unsurprisingly, uh, racism played a big part in why people didn't want them to marry. Yeah, people were really, really unhappy with the sisters for marrying non-white men is it bad that i was like oh no the only controversy is the uh is the ableism but yeah. nope, it's ableism and racism and racism they really just slapped their hands together on that one i imagine it was i mean every relationship has its trials i just as someone who tends to be very private i imagine mm-hmm. there was a really interesting dynamic if you are having an argument with your partner and then their brother has to be there. Mm-hmm. I've thought about that a lot while researching this, you know, what that means and how those conversations happen, especially because it said that the the two brothers were very different uh, temperamentally. Chang was said to be a heavy drinker with a bad temper and Aang was said to be very placid and easygoing and how that might relate. You know, what if in anger, one of them says something to one wife because they were there for something with the other, and those wives are sisters, so then that can get complicated. It's all just, it's a very unique situation that I'm sure, you know, they tried to navigate the best they could with obviously not a lot of uh, role models to work off of. Right. Even though, you know, I would never presume that they are poly, but the the dynamic of having to navigate multiple relationships in kind of one larger greater relationship mirrors a lot of poly dynamics that i'm Mm -hmm. familiar with just because you have to take care of a lot of people you can't Mm -hmm. just pretend that you're this insular pair right doesn't affect others right and i think the thing that really sticks to me is that they married sisters because that does just make things extra complicated because i don't know i don't think i treat anyone in the world worse than i treat my own sisters and i also don't (laughs) fight for and love anyone in the world the way I do my own sisters. Right. Um, So Chang and Aang passed away in January of 1874 at the age of 63. Chang preceded Aang in death by about two and a half hours. We'll get into it. So doctors from Philadelphia went to Mount Airy after the twins' death on January 17th in 1874 and received permission from the families to examine the bodies. 
they wanted to settle a question of whether or not the two could have been separated in life. They transported the bodies to the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, now the Mutter Museum. A plaster cast is on display at the museum to this day, which shows the incision, which revealed that the band connecting the twins included portions of the perioneal cavities of each twin, and that their livers were joined by a thin strip of liver tissue. The doctors concluded that the twins could not have been safely separated because of blood loss that would have resulted from the operation. Their joined livers are also on display in the museum right below the cast. Oh, wow. This cast, you know, we've talked about death masks pretty extensively lately. It's the same sort of thing. It's just the entire torso of these two brothers. And in the cast, they're looking directly at each other, facing one another, Mm -hmm. which is so interesting to see when... In only a second ago, I saw them, a photograph of them alive facing out. Right. And yeah, it, it's, it, I can see why doctors were wondering and perhaps maybe they wondered for much, if not all of their life, because the amount that they are connected by is percentage-wise a very, very small portion of their bodies. So in this image... Ang is on the left and Chang is on the right. And Chang died first of what is presumed to be a cerebral clot. And it's unknown what caused Ang's death, but it's thought it was shock from his brother's death. Shock because then his liver started to die? or shock I think because... in this case they mean medical shock, but I think okay. it was probably also very shocking. Oh. I know, I know. Oh, that must have been heartbreaking. I think it probably really was. I mean, oh, God, I can't imagine Aang's experience of that. Um, it, it, it truly is. <laughs> I don't have words for it because it's your whole life. His brother was his whole life. I mean, it's how they made money. It's how he lived. He was the, 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 the one constant that literally physically could never be removed. And then for him to suddenly be gone. And if it was a cerebral clot, it was probably pretty quick. And unexpected. Oh. That must have been devastating. Um, so it was only about two hours after his brother passed away that Aang also passed away. That must have been harrowing. I think harrowing is all I can think. Yeah. But that is the life of Chang and Aang. They ultimately did go around touring, but they weren't just, you know, performers. They also gave lectures and settled eventually onto their own farms in North Carolina and lived out their days there. I like covering this story because I've seen so many, like, cartoon caricatures, like, over-the-top, conjoined twin, whatever, mm-hmm. and learning about them as people first is so much more engaging. <laughs> I completely agree. And and I was excited to cover this because I've known about Chang and Ang for a long time. Um, and, I you know, I mentioned I got to see them in the, the Mutter Museum when I went to visit. And as a twin, the, the, you know, conjoined twins are always brought up to you and it's something that people ask you like what would you do if you were conjoined twins and you know, it's something i've had to think about and to see them live such rich full lives was really cool to cover and really interesting to to get to dive into but we've covered chang and Ang bunker now it's time to move on to our next person and that is annie jones known as the bearded lady i have a 
poster of one of her performances here for you uh, to describe. Annie! Oh, gosh. I wonder how old she is in this picture. Um, In this one in particular, I would say she's definitely not too old. Um, Late teens, early 20s, I would imagine. Hmm. Okay, so this poster is awesome. The font is just so... I, it has the beginnings of what will eventually lead to, like, Art Nouveau in the font. Yes. Um, and it's so cool because they've integrated it into and around the photograph of her. Mm-hmm. It's also black and white, but it's got that kind of sepia-ish quality to it. Just a little, just a little hint. Mm-hmm. And she is uh, facing us, to- looking toward my left as the viewer, She's wearing what looks to be like a classic floral dress with kind of yes. lace front, Absolutely. low square collar with a little bit of a high neck behind, long black hair kind of streaming down her back off mm-hmm. to the side the way she's leaning. She has the edges of her hair kind of done in a little swirl design mm-hmm. in the front. Um, and then... A very full, thick, long beard that connects from hair all the way down. And her beard goes down to, like, past her neck toward, like, mid-chest, I want to say, in this Mm -hmm. picture. Her hair, all of it, like, her hair, her beard is very thick and bold and black, which, given the quality of this photograph, adds a really strong contrast because yes. the, the most other detail is around her eyes and where she's looking off. And she has kind of this like half-lidded stare, which I think is really more just due to the direction she's looking than anything mm-hmm. else. But she does seem a bit weary by virtue of her eyes being a little lowered to me and again like that's the the viewer putting whatever they want on it hi i'm weary (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean the nature of what we're talking about none of these uh people live the the happiest of lives but annie jones was born in virginia on july 14th 1865 and she began her career in exhibition very early she was purportedly born with a chin covered in fine hair and her parents were said to have been horrified by her appearance It wasn't long, however, before the monetary benefits of their daughter began to become very clear as word of her unique appearance came to the attention of one P.T. Barnum. Cool, Mom and Dad. Mm Mm-hmm. Jones was such a popular attraction that Barnum offered her mother a three-year contract at a rate of $150, which is $2,800 today. I couldn't find if that was $150 a year, $150 a month, a performance, but... It's not enough money, no matter what it is. It's not enough money to sell your daughter, is what it boils down to. And they did. They just sold her off to P.T. Barnum and said, here you go. Oh, and this character was turned into a character in that movie. It was, which a movie I have not seen and will not see. No, don't see it. I will say for that movie, I've seen it. Um, The team that did the choreography was like Fosse, assignment understood. The Mm. music is there. I can't for the life of me figure out why perfectly talented people all got together and went, no, P.T. Barnum's the good guy. Right. I I am not against the idea of the movie in general. I know the whole message is love yourself, you know, 
you're perfect the way you are, blah, 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 blah. Just don't make P.T. Barnum the good guy. Make it a fictional circus. Make it a fictional story. Or make him the bad guy. Yes, that would be even better. He has a stumbling block, but in the span of, like, one song, he becomes the good guy again. <laughs> Ugh. And he was, again, to emphasize, as we've said before, he was not a good guy. It, no. It, no amount of singing or wonderful choreography will fix that. No. <laughs> okay, so back to Annie. Whether the cause of her condition was thirstuism, a condition that causes excess hair growth, or an unrelated genetic condition is, is kind of unknown, even to this day. Many photographers, including Matthew Brady, took her portraits during her lifetime, and those portraits, like the one you saw here, were widely distributed. It was often a postcard you went home with, just like we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. So this gets a little wild. In an incident which may have been one of Barnum's kind of famous publicity stunts, a New York phrenologist kidnapped Annie Jones no. when she was a young child, and Barnum and the police found her exhibited in a church fair when the man claimed the child was his. The matter went to court, and the judge had Jones separated from the others before it was her time to testify, and when she was taken into the courtroom, she went straight to her parents when she saw them, so the judge declared that the case was closed. I have no evidence beyond what I've shared here to say that this was one of P.T. Barnum's insane publicity stunts, except I'm still going to say it. Why? Because it made her look, it made people aware of her. It made people aware that she existed and then they could go see her and then go see. You know, you talk about it, it, it was in the newspapers because it was in court. It was a big talk about town. You could have all the rumors spread. I mean, it. I can see why he did it. It still makes him a bad guy. <sighs> So, moving on to Annie Jones as a performer, when she performed, as you mentioned when you described her image, she purposely dressed as feminine as possible, and she learned to play the mandolin in order to contrast her, quote, masculine traits. This worked well, and as an adult, Jones became the country's top, quote, bearded lady, and she acted as a spokesperson for Barnum's, quote unquote, freaks. Notably, the word freaks was a word she tried to abolish from the business, and she was very vocal about trying to change the wording of the business. Mm. Annie Jones married Richard Elliott in 1880 or 1881, but because she was only 15 years old Ooh, at the time, whereas he was a full-grown man, he concealed her age and her parents disapproved of the marriage. It's gross, but about 15 years later... So she's now around 30 years old. She divorced him. And in 1895, she went on to marry her childhood sweetheart, William Donovan. The two decided to travel as a duo act for a while, and they toured Europe together before Donovan unexpectedly passed away just four years later. So poor Annie Jones. 15 years in an awful marriage to a man who married her when she was only 15 years old, but he was a grown man, leaves him crazy unusual for the time as it is, marries her childhood sweetheart and gets four years of a happy marriage. That's heartbreaking. It, it is. Um, so then two years after he died, in 1902, she passed away in Brooklyn of tuberculosis at only 37 years old. <sighs> so she had a pretty short life. And she was very famous and she... She knew that she had crafted a platform for herself as the top bearded lady in the country, and she used that platform to try and push for 
change in the industry. Mm -hmm. But she could never really get away from performing. Even when she married Donovan and left, she came back. This was sort of the only life that she knew. And tragically, she passed away really young before she could make a lot of change in the industry. I really relate to that in that, like, you see the negatives of the industry, like in our case, content creation, mm-hmm. and yet you still continue to work in it and you want to make it better, but it's still your industry. Yes. I wonder what her relationship with gender was, because I, we, people that we love talk about this all the time about how, you know, there are what society has for decades and decades and decades, kind of defined it as masculine and what is feminine. Those Mm -hmm. things exist, and those things are really useful for a lot of people. And also, those things are not useful for other people, but there's nuance. You don't have to say one way is right and one way is not. Mm -hmm. You You cannot fully say that nothing is masculine and nothing is feminine in relationship to how our entire society understands it, but you can also say, well, this thing that you think is masculine makes me feel feminine. And it's a a complicated web because it's mostly personal and we want it to be definitions for the the wider world. And there are so many people for whom definitions are actively harmful and they shy away from it. And she lived in a time where things were very black and white. And I just – it would be interesting – to be able to, you know, when you say, like, sit down and have lunch with a person from history and talk to her about her experience with gender. Because no matter what she identified with personally, it was so much a performance and so much mm-hmm. a part of her job. That's so true. You know, I'm, I'm sure she had days where she didn't love her appearance or the way she looked or the way people treated her because of it. But it was the also it was also the way she made money. I mean, again, this is something that we've talked about as content creators and and something that I think about a lot is, you know, people whose entire livelihood is built on their appearance, the amount of stress involved in that and, and the way that the things you might like least about yourself are still the things that make you money and how, how you escape from that and what that does to you. After researching her, she's skyrocketed up my list of people I would like to have lunch with if I could. Especially advocating for change in her industry from such a young age. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. She's a badass. I want to meet her. Not the not the movie version. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to meet the real Annie Jones. Incredible. So um, that is – those are the, the two people that I brought for you today. And I think it's now time that you bring your story. Yeah. So today I uh, – I have a story. (laughs) (laughs) She replied to the squealing child with a fine shimmer of bubbles. It chirped in the young human tones of surprise. With a splash of her tail, she enjoyed the sound of more squeals and laughter. It was too blurry to clearly see through the glass, but this was good, she'd learned. She couldn't look too real and live. The mermaid itched the taut skin across her fin with one membranous hand. She should feel firm and smooth, but the flesh of her felt shriveled and scaly, bits of skin flaking off into the water as pale pink flecks. The marvelous mermaid of Madagascar sighed. She didn't know where Madagascar was, 
but she knew it was far from here by the way the humans crowded near when Vinny barked the word out to passers-by. She didn't even really know where here was, but it was far from the sea. Here was dry. When she was first caught, it had taken a great amount of doing to escape, or rather, to be purchased by someone that roamed the land. At the time, she was trapped in a stationary tank in a large building. She'd fluttered and splashed, swum and screamed, and made quite the show to convince the man that she could perform. The mermaid was purchased, that she understood. The word money was one she learned even before she was plucked from the sea. Money and mermaid. They felt the same in her mouth, and were so often strung together by the humans that she struggled even to separate the meanings in her mind. The currents upon which the humans traveled? No, the roads. While traveling the roads, she watched the people whose names were also tied to the circus money. This was how she learned to tell people that she was not a mermaid. Not really. The boy called Tom had explained that people liked to think they'd fished out your trick. He'd laughed. The mermaid thought, fished. That was a good thing indeed. She trusted Tom. It was mostly silence that did it. The humans made all sorts of decisions if you did not speak. Then there was a chair, like a cart, fashioned by Alfred. In this, she could move around on land. The mermaid would sit in the chair and stay dry as long as she could stand, with a damp blanket tossed over her fin. Sometimes she felt herself crack and blister in the heat. The itching gave her a strong urge to flap around. She learned that the lobster boy, who did not resemble the shelled creatures of the deep, could not possibly be one. He was a particularly bad swimmer. He feared the water, he told her one day, hands on the edge and leaning over the tank to chat while she bobbed in the swirling dirt. The mermaid wanted to tell him he ought to swim, he would be particularly good at it. She admired his unique human hands, which looked not unlike her own mermaid ones. But she said nothing. The mermaid did not trust the lobster boy. Money and freak. Those were also the same word, spoken differently. Freak tasted like a poison sting in her mouth. She struggled to get the sound out around her sharp teeth and narrow lips. But she liked to hear it. Hearing Vinnie bark freak to the mass of people that would drift into their tents sounded like a dinner bell. The more he spoke the word, the more her stomach rumbled at the thought of a profitable night's dinner. The mermaid spent most of the daylight hours hidden in her tent, which Alfred pitched, or holding her eyes tightly closed. It was hard to see in the brightness of land. She would never come up during the day when she lived out at sea. The heat of the sun burned her eyes, and the air above the water made each sound too loud. She knew most of the circus by their smell, a scent she never quite grew accustomed to out of the water. There was the cannibal girl, who always smelled of blood, but she did not know why. Once, when she was drifting with her eyes closed, Maureen came into her tent and caught the mermaid humming to herself. It was a low drone in her chest, 
like the call of the water that was too deep for the light to reach. After hearing this, Maureen asked the mermaid so many questions that she never sang again. At least, not when anyone was awake, and not in the open air of land. "'Where did you say you're from, girl?' said Maureen, stroking her beard. The marvelous mermaid of Madagascar responded according to her show script, and the woman scoffed. "'Funny,' she said. But she did not repeat the question. The mermaid thought she would try to collect the name of another land the next time she heard it. But she only ever heard the names of the places they visited, and a mermaid could not say she was from any place she currently was that was not the sea. But where was she going? Once, when they were in a small human settlement surrounded by trees, she'd leapt out of her chair into the water of a wide green lake. The company left her to swim all day, and she thought she might stay forever. But the lake did not connect to larger water except by a small trickle through the rocks of a mountain. Also, the massive shelled beast that dwelled at the bottom desired very much to eat her. So, by moonlight, the marvelous mermaid crawled back out onto the land and pulled herself on her hands through the grass and the dirt until she made it back to her chair and her tent and her tank. And she said, Freak! 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 to Vinny until he handed her a cold biscuit and some beans. She's simple, he'd said to the man covered in pictures. But the mermaid could not hear through the cacophony of her own chewing. She simply closed her eyes and smelled the salt of men that was not her salt. Law and land. These words were both hot like noon. They were a prairie of fear upon which she might fillet herself. Law meant man, and land meant man, and man meant money, and money meant freak, and freak meant mermaid but none of the words meant freedom. She practiced asking like she practiced walking on her hands and staying out in the air. When will I see? Soon, the humans would say. This she did not understand. Where will I see? The humans would tell her of their towns and cities and shops. They did not understand. She practiced more, listening during each show of The Marvelous Mermaid of Madagascar for the beginning words of human speech. How will I see? she tried. At this, Vinnie began making her wear glass and wire on her face, never during shows but always in between. If her head was above water, he would come close to her glass-covered eyes and hold up his separated hands and ask her how many fingers he had. I see, she would say, baring her teeth and splashing him with her tail. I see, you see, I see, she would say, ending each phrase with a splash to express her point. He splashed her back, and the mermaid hoped this meant he understood. She wanted the wider water. He must know the sea she sought. I see, you can see, he said and bared his teeth back at her. The word he said did not sound like the word for the waves, though the human sounds were the same. Her sea tasted of salt, and his sea tasted of warmth. The man leaned over the edge of the tank 
and pressed his mouth against the marvelous mermaid. She held still. Man meant money, and money meant food. The man's warm mouth tasted sour. The mermaid did not know what words humans spoke with lips together, so she spoke none. The longer he pressed, the more he moved. The more he moved, the more she could taste the damp of him. Small drips rolled from Vinny's hair, so she flicked out her tongue to catch one. Ah, the salt. She licked again. In his touch, in his water, he was showing her the salt of him so that she would know he knew the sea. She could feel an excitement in him and understood that he must also be eager to reach the wider water. I see, you see, the mermaid said, and touched the droplet along Vinny's brow with a cool hand. And now that you can see, he tapped the round glass tied to her face, your life on the road is going to be so much easier. The mermaid did not like the way humans communicated with mouths touching one another, but she was very happy that he finally understood her. So many people are going to see you. Vinny was showing his flat, human teeth again. We will make so much money. There was his salt and his excitement again. The marvelous mermaid knew money meant mermaid, and she was mermaid. So she wanted money, if money meant the salt of the sea. We should build you a bigger tank, the man said. This was such a good story. I mean, for many reasons. One, the way that you communicated through different senses and that's how the mermaid saw the world and understood the world. Incredible. Um, the way that words had tastes and feelings was amazing. And then um, what I got to get a little peek at because I can I can see the see the writing nah. <laughs> is um, for for the whole time that the mermaid is talking about the sea, she means the ocean. And that is very clear when you can read the story, mm-hmm, but to mm-hmm. listen to the story, and experience it that way um, is really, really cool. So this is just amazing. I mean, good job. What an Thanks. amazing story. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up because I think this story is very different to read than to hear because in all of the times that the mermaid is saying, I see, she's saying S-E-A. And mm-hmm. all of the times that Vinny and the humans are saying see, they mean S-E-E, mm-hmm. which makes it clearer on paper, I think, than when I'm reading it, which is absolutely ridiculous for a podcaster to have done and then stuck with. <laughs> I love it. Are you kidding? <laughs> I just, uh, th- that is where we're at. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the reason that I kept this, because I played with scrapping it, I was like, maybe I should get rid of it. But I really quite like the image of a mermaid being kissed and then flicking out her little like ocean mm-hmm. tongue and licking someone. <laughs> well, and I like that she was like, oh, I understand the message. Like just the, the, uh, uh it was so cool to see this story from the perspective of someone who just doesn't communicate the way that we do and, and but still has misunderstandings and assumptions anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And I also like I wanted a story of a real mermaid, like the, because mm-hmm. we're talking about the very harrowing real world 
experiences of people who have to make money and live lives. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted that fantastical idea of like, this is a mermaid who was also put in a bad position mm-hmm. and has to do what she can with it. And what a bummer that she couldn't just live in the lake. Am I right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Justice for the mermaid. Justice for the mermaid. So while we're on the topic of money, meaning mermaid, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about m- more kind of the exploitation that went into these freak shows. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a long quote that I'm going to include from the Crime Reads article, For Decades, Carnival Sideshows Were a Real, quote, Nightmare Alley. By Keith Roysden, uh, because he includes a n- large number of quotes from sideshow performers. Mm. Quote, in August 1960, the Star Tribune in Minneapolis, in a small feature tied to the Minnesota State Fair, asked sideshow attractions, when did you decide to earn a living as a freak? One after another, the five performers they spoke with said that their fates were decided before they were born. I was born with alligator skin, and when I was 15 years old, I got a call from a carnival asking if I would join their freak show, Esther Blackman explained. I can stretch my skin 10 to 12 inches on any part of my body, Jack Stretch said. I'm the rubber skin man. I became the world's smallest mother, as I gave birth to a three-pound, 12-ounce baby, LaVonda Evans said, I'm two feet tall and weigh 36 pounds. I'm a dwarf four feet tall, and I went into show business in 1915, Alva Evans said. It was this year, Hugh Bailey said, I'm 26 years old, and I'm called Lobster Boy because instead of legs, I have flippers, and my arms are like lobster claws. I was born this way. In July 1963, in the Edmonton Journal, Carnival boss Dick Best explained, Without the curious in the crowd, these guys wouldn't eat. Neither would I. We'd all be on welfare. Bailey made a reappearance to note, Sure, I'm a freak. I got arms and legs with bones that look like horseshoes. I'm two feet tall, so what else is new? I ain't a freak among the midway guys. I'm part of the show. They know me and don't stare. We're all in the same racket. The freaks are there because they want to be, a reporter from the Muncie Evening Press in Indiana wrote in July 1971 after she interviewed Bailey. The article went on to quote the sideshow manager as he dismissively spoke of, quote, bureaucrats and do-gooders who think they, the freaks, should sit in their homes. The headline, Fair Freaks Enjoy Their Jobs, Lives. The article notes that the alligator skin girl organized a protest when South Carolina legislators wanted to ban freaks from performing in the state. The law was amended to forbid performers younger than 18. The alligator skin girl's real name is not cited. Okay, so that felt like kind of a mismatch of quotes from people, but I wanted I wanted everyone to kind of hear this conversation of real people talking about their lives as performers and they also use the language that was used about them right in a really interesting way and it has a very different flavor to it it was actually that article that got me talking about what words taste like <laughs> oh interesting it's just it's that dagger of nuance like mm-hmm. girls gotta eat something that was really interesting that was pointed out was uh, i think bailey said it the idea that 
it became a safe place mm-hmm. once they were in it as well. Mm-hmm. You know, they found normalcy. It is obviously an extremely nuanced topic. And I would argue that it's not even a topic we've gotten so terribly far away from. We don't have these big freak show performances like they did then, but we do have reality shows. Mm-hmm. We have other ways of experiencing people who are different from us and them capitalizing on it. It's it's the morbid curiosity. And so to hear from them, the performers themselves, that this – for some of them it's something that they really chose and others they felt they had no other opportunity. I think it's – as we've said a million times, it is so nuanced. And honestly, it's not even for us to decide if it's good or bad because no. we're not the ones living it. It reminds me of a lot of the ways people interact with sex work moralizing about sex workers while still partaking in their industry buying what they're selling and consuming them and their products looking down on them god it's a great comparison yeah and the the more we allow sex workers to decide what their industry needs and how it needs to operate the better and safer it is for them and while this is lives very much in the past i do think that if people could have let them make decisions for how their industry ran. It could have potentially looked different. Mm -hmm. And again, we've covered a wide variety of stories, including people being enslaved, children Mm -hmm. being sold from their families, people just needing to make a buck to eat dinner. Like this, there are so many ways that this has looked, but hearing people talk about their own lives is really important, especially hearing people talk about their lives in a casual way. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, like, it doesn't all need to be selling trauma. Things don't have to be bad all the time. Things aren't bad all the time. Things can't be bad all the time. So, a final quote. This is to quote the UCLA entertainment law paper called Dangerous Bodies, Freak Shows, Expression, and Exploitation. To be certain, recognizing freak shows as expressive theater makes it more difficult to regulate or prohibit shows that, many would agree, have historically negatively affected people who have unusual bodies. This does not, however, justify ignoring the context and meaning of freak shows. By pretending freak shows are simply public displays of persons with unusual bodies, legal discourse is unable to recognize that discrimination based on physical difference does not derive from any inherent quality of the unusual body, but rather from the views expressed about the persons who are different. Treating freak shows as creative commercial expression, on the other hand, allows lawyers and jurists to emphasize that, like other forms of expression, freak shows are subjective and artificial. This approach recognizes that, quote, freak is a social construct rather than an inherent characteristic of the unusual body and thereby encourages public discussion and criticism of freak shows, end quote. I just want to thank our community for going through this episode with us because Mm -hmm. Tracy and I have wanted to cover this for a very long time. It's a topic that we are very interested in as learning people who like language, (laughs) who like history. And we have been doing this for a long time now, this podcast, and realized that we can 
rely on our community in the same way we, we rely on each other because everyone we interact with is always just so kind and earnest mm -hmm. and enthusiastic about people. And not to mention enthusiastic about nuances and, and about um, something I love about our community is they're, they're very enthusiastic about not shying away from things that might be bad or gross or cruel or mean or, you know, any other negative word you can throw at it. Um, we've built up a, an audience of listeners and thank you for, for you listening now who not only understand but appreciate that nuance and and recognize, like we've said already, talking about that bad things doesn't make you a bad person and exploring the darkness that is within our past is not um, validating it. And there are so many interesting good humans who we can't yes. sit down to lunch with. So we got to we got to do what we can. And as in any episode, our show notes are filled with more than we could have ever mentioned. So especially in this one, if you were excited to hear quotes from these actual performance, there are more than we ever could have possibly fit in mm -hmm. one episode. So always please dive into the show notes. You can find them on our website or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tracy. Mm -hmm. Tell me something good. My something good, I think, is very obvious. Uh, I just got back from an amazing trip to Italy. Um, you did? I did. We talked about it. I did as I promised, and I got a picture with the man, the myth, the legend himself, Hot David. And isn't he hot? Yes. Well, so what I learned is only a few, I think, months before I got to see him, they completely redid the lighting in the museum. And so the version of David I got to see was, like, beautifully well-lit like just glowing thriving. and everyone who's ever taken a selfie knows that the lighting matters it does <laughs> so not only did i get to see david but that same day i got to go to the uffizi gallery and i saw <clears throat> i saw artemisa gentileschi and judith judith slaying holophonies i saw her her second one her older version and as i was uh just so overjoyed and talking to my two sisters who went there with me they were so sweet. We, we um, like, we had done a tour and then I made them leave the tour so I could specifically go find this painting. And they were like, we have to find this for you. If we do nothing else, we're going to find this for you. And we turned the <laughs> corner and I gasped and I saw it. And I'm, I was just telling them about all the details and, and talking about the bracelet that she painted in the second painting because she's so much more, um, she had the ability to do more details. And I was just going on and on and on talking about this painting and I uh, didn't realize until a few minutes later that a whole crowd had come around us. No. Because I was so excited and talking about it. I have pictures there. Um, I, I, I know I posted them on our TikTok. I might have posted them on our uh, Instagram, but I kind of accidentally became a tour guide. And by the time we left, there was crowds of people around that painting taking pictures of it who did, like didn't care about it beforehand because... Did you do a live show? I kind of did a mini live show. <laughs> And then I turned another corner and I got to see Caravaggio's shield with the head of Medusa on it, which is just <laughs> – I sent a picture to Rowan immediately. <laughs> so my heart history nerd brain was exploding with joy and happiness, and, and that's just a, a something good that's going to carry me through for years and years and years to come. Yo, get yourself a best friend who – nerds out about art in a museum and then sends you pictures of art that you're gonna nerd out about oh yeah get you a friend you can nerd out about art with 
from across the world. I was like texting her all day <laughs> while I was in Florence and you were so sweet. You're like, I don't want to distract you from your trip. So I'm not going to answer. And I finally texted. I was like, answer me. <laughs> Pay attention to me. Look at this art. <laughs> I know. I didn't want you to feel like, I don't know, you were pulled away. I don't know. Yeah. yeah you're, like, you're like, I want you to feel immersed in the art. I don't want you distracted by me texting you all day. And I was like, text me all day. <laughs> Pay attention to me. It made me so happy. I love that you pulled people into Artemisia's work. I love that you geeked out so hard that other people noticed. I it was I didn't notice I'd done it until my older sister pointed out where she was like, you realize that everyone was listening because I thought they were listening to audio tours or something. And, and so I posted a TikTok about it. Um, and a lot of people responded to the TikTok very sweetly saying that they'd done similar things. And that was really <laughs> validating. So that was my something good. Um, Italy was amazing. The food is amazing. Um, I have to get back to Florence and spend so much more time there. Can I come? Because I've only been to Italy once for Rome. And Rome was great, but it wasn't my favorite trip I've ever been on. And mm -hmm. I could use like a palate cleanser. <laughs> yes. I, yes, absolutely. Florence was so incredible. And there's just a million things I didn't even get to see. There's a whole Galileo. You can you, you can look at one of Galileo's actual telescopes. And I just didn't even get to see that. Oh, oh, oh. I know. There. We'll plan a trip, but now, Rowan, it's your turn to tell me something good. I just got back from Big Bad Con. Yeah! So while Tracy was doing Italy, we had a little bit of, like, overlap, and then I immediately went away to Big Bad Con, and it was the best con I've ever been to, mm. hands it's down. It's so small, and it's people in the industry, and it feels like... It feels like work, but also you're in the clubhouse with all your friends. Mm -hmm. It's I've had some of the most emotional gaming experiences I've ever had. I am incredibly privileged to play with like the best of the best. Mm -hmm. And I watch some people do things playing TTRPGs that I didn't even know was possible there was just so much investment you right uh, i'm barely making words y'all i the <laughs> thing about big bad con is there was a lot of staying up until 4 a.m playing ttrpgs mm -hmm. there was not a lot of sleep um, so sleep is for later big bad con is for games <laughs> i just met so many fantastic people in our space who I either knew only online or didn't know at all. And mm -hmm. Big Bad Con really prioritized the POC community in the TTRPG space. They went above and beyond. And I, coming back, was shocked to see on Twitter that some people were really upset by that. And by people, I mean white people, some some white guys. Mm. Um, mm. And by guys, I mean guys the vibe, not necessarily guys the uh, gender. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it just shocked me so much because being at Big Bad Con, there were a lot of events and spaces that I was invited into, and that was perfectly fine. I had plenty of things to do. And also, I talked about this with a lot of creators the POC spaces were not in any way about me, were not any way for me, and 
having other members of our community feel safer, be encouraged, Mm -hmm. not only be welcomed, but be celebrated made the space better for me too. Because when everyone in our community feels safe and good and excited and appreciated, then it feels better for everyone. Mm -hmm. It feels safer. Yeah. So I cannot for the life of me understand why anybody thought that was a bad thing. And I'm just so enthusiastic about everybody also getting on Twitter and talking about how much it meant to them, how much their careers have been improved, how much their like mental health in the TTRPG space has been improved. Mm-hmm. The, Ajit and Sean and everyone who made that con possible just – they – there is a new guard in the TTRPG community that is really pushing out that like sweaty, man, crunchy, punishing mm-hmm. malarkey. And I am absolutely thrilled to be around to see that because it is what I needed as a kid to have been yeah. brought into games sooner. I would have come into gaming so much sooner. Um, so that's my soapbox. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's a good soapbox. I'm I'm standing at the base of it cheering you on. It's so nice that like you went away, you had a vacation. Mm-hmm. I got to go away and and work slash have kind of a vacation. Yeah, and it sounds like somehow you had the more exhausting vacation, and even though I was driving all around Italy, you know, uh, my exhaustion is your exhaustion, babe. <laughs> Our exhaustion. <laughs> Our therapist. Our therapist is doing wonders for us, I'll tell you what. And this is our podcast. (laughs) Thank you all so much for joining us. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. Or a crowd at a museum. (laughs) And we'll see you soon. (laughs) Okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our logo is by Jamie Harrison, and our music is by Taylor Ash. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Sleep is for the weak. Um, (laughs) No, oh my gosh, no, never. (laughs) That's me, I'm the weak.